Welcome to 2038. I'm Max Reed. I'm David Wallace-Wells. In the future, there will be no driverless cars. This is Missy Cummings. When I think about 2038, as far as aviation goes, the biggest change will be that FedEx and UPS planes will be flown by no one. So commercial cargo planes will become robots. And as far as surface transportation goes, I've got some bad news for everybody. While you might be able to get your groceries delivered to you by a slow-speed robot, please sign. You are still not going to be able to call a car on your phone and jump in the back seat and have it take you to Las Vegas. And then in the most depressing non-development by 2038, United States will still not have automated rail. Hi, I'm Professor Missy Cummings, the director of the Duke University Humans and Autonomy Laboratory. So you're saying no flying cars? Well, you know, flying cars are tricky because they are possible. And certainly we have all the technology in place to do that. In 2038, you might be able to get in a flying air taxi, potentially one that is also a car, in another country. And you will have to have a lot of money. So maybe in China or Dubai, you'll be able to take these services, but they will not be for the common man. So that sounds like what you're saying is the main obstacle to a lot of this technology that we've been promised over the last few years is regulatory rather than technological. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes and no. I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag. So drones and rail are basically in the same category in that all the challenges that we have in going forward are really primarily regulatory. Driverless cars are different because the problems are technologically driven. What are the big problems with driverless cars? So driverless cars are still very, very immature technologies. The fundamental automated technologies that power drones and rail, for example, are very mature, quite mature. We've had it for a long time, and we actually know how to implement them and how to implement them safely. Driverless cars are still kind of the wild, wild west of development, and researchers are still learning new things about how they reason, how to make sure that they're not so brittle, which means that they break under very unexpected and often very benign circumstances. For example, I mean, this is why Tesla Autopilot is so dangerous, even though it's a deployed technology today. Millimeter wave radar at highway speeds cannot detect static obstacles. And so this is why we've seen some deaths in the Tesla because the radar literally uh, can't see what is very obvious to the human eye. And so until we have these problems worked out, which have some core basic physics principles that we will not get over by the year 2038, uh, you know, until we fix these problems, we're not going to be able to get past some hurdles. So when you hear from like super optimists on driverless cars who think they're going to be, you know, flooding America's highways in the next decade, is that because those people don't see the problems with the algorithms and the technology that you do? Or is it because they just think that computing power is going to get so much better over that period that computing power will solve all those problems and, you know, we'll be living in a much safer driverless world? 
I think the answer is both of those things. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. I think there's a ridiculous amount of technological illiteracy that runs amok in what would presumably be otherwise smart people. Um, Even the people who are sort of like running these companies themselves? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you, I I do a lot of C-suite consulting. And um, for the most part, I I have made quite a a lot of money and a reputation out of running around and telling CEOs they do not know what they're talking about and they need to quit (laughs) saying things like artificial intelligence and blockchain. Uh, You know, so yeah, I think there's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's just a gross amount of misunderstanding. And you know, and I'm not totally anti-hype. Hype is good, and this is actually where I think the the technological illiteracy is a real problem. You do need some hype to keep excitement and motivation and keep your stock price moving along, for example. But what worries me is when people can't differentiate, okay, we're going to put some hype out there just to keep investors interested and excited, and we actually know that it's hype. But I think what's the problem is happening now is that we've got CEOs, very well-known, well-spoken people who are putting the stuff out there and they actually believe it. And it's just simply not true. It's, you know, it's interesting because you, you, at the beginning, you, you, um, you grouped these things into three categories. There was the drones, then rail and driverless cars. And I can see how each of those poses a kind of different programming machine learning problem. I mean, drones are being controlled by a human or maybe they're being controlled by a very kind of static algorithm about exactly where they're supposed to fly. And rail is obviously following a path that has been lay down for it and driverless cars are operating in this much more dynamic environment and therefore the kind of the you know the algorithm that powers their driving is has to be much much more complicated much more reactive like if every car on the road is driverless then driverless cars don't have to worry about the idiocy of human drivers and so imagining your way all the way to utopia is one way that you can see those programming challenges as um, less pressing yeah, I agree generally. It's nice to think that that we could get there, but uncertainty is the number one enemy of machine learning in any field that machine learning is in. And so if you have a well-structured, well-modeled world, then these algorithms are going to work great as long as there are no surprises. But that's a big if. There are a lot of auto fatalities right now out there, but it strikes me that people feel differently about auto fatalities that come from self-driving cars than they do that come from humans driving cars. That's true. And I see this a lot also in the military warfare domain. I work a lot with different countries on autonomous weapon systems. And somehow it's worse to be killed by a drone firing a weapon than it is if you have a human pilot in the plane firing the weapon. You know, and it's not really entirely clear that that logic doesn't hold because, you know, a human programmed it, a human probably did the remote weapons release, yet they still attribute the death to the drone. So I, I think that it is uniquely human to want to believe that that our fate is controlled by other humans and that regardless of what the domain is, we feel like that at least we can hold a human responsible in case something goes wrong as opposed to some unknown group of programmers and testers and regulators who would – it's not even clear what the path of responsibility would be for a driverless car when it became lethal. 
I mean, given all that, do you think that we're going to see programs like the one in Pittsburgh or I know there's some in Mountain View, these sort of autonomous driving programs, do you think they're going to continue? Is is this of just a feature of certain city life in certain cities now? Or is this something that is going to peter out as it becomes clear that we're maybe just not ready for it, either technologically or culturally? So I don't think this movement is going to go away by any stretch. I think what you're going to do, and you've already started to see, for example, the CEOs of the driverless car companies start to say, wait a minute, don't, not so fast, we're not moving quick as quickly as you thought we were going to. I think that you're going to see a lot of development in urban environments for uh, driverless shuttle types of development where you go to a airport in a city to a downtown area or from high areas of congestion maybe there'll even be taxes put in place that if you want to drive into a city instead of a driverless shuttle you're just going to pay an exorbitant price to be able to take your own car so i do think we're going to see that development continue to happen at a pretty good clip I think the idea of the individual driverless car that you or myself could own, I think that's going to start to slide more and more in the background as it becomes more evident to not just the people in the company, because I guarantee you the engineers inside these companies know that, but to the CEOs and probably more important to the investors, that this technology is still very immature and far away from the rapid deployment that they want. And so, like all technologies, there'll be a pivot to something that's more attainable in the short term. So for example, Toyota has the Guardian concept where they're not gonna go full on driverless, but they're gonna start increasing the technologies inside the car to keep you from making mistakes. So I do think there's a much bigger space for a collaborative opportunity. Audi, for example, has just introduced something called the Traffic Jam Pilot, which is supposedly a fully autonomous mode. It's only in Germany right now that allows you to go completely hands-off and you're expected to do other things instead of drive under slow speeds, under about 37 miles an hour. Assuming you're in a nose-to-tail traffic jam, the car will creep along for you and you don't have to pay attention. And so I'm a big fan of these functional technologies that take over what we know to be very painful for humans. We hate to be in, in, in these kinds of traffic jams and we would much rather be doing something productive like cell phones or watching a movie, for example. And so uh, we'll see how the rollout goes in Germany. Audi has specifically said that it's not coming to the U.S. because of regulatory issues. So I do think that as companies are willing to take these chances in another country with more well-behaved drivers like Germany, that we'll see how that goes and they can be the test case and then eventually we'll get those technologies here. I wonder um, what it is about the technologies right now that makes that kind of tech work and makes fully driverless cars not. I mean, I know there's a sort of wealth of difference, but I'm interested in what the sort of the main hangups are that allow that kind of tech to work and, and the sort of full autonomy to not work. The fact of the matter is, is that all these sensors uh, work far better at slow speeds. And this is why it's a 37 mile per hour difference. I personally would like to see that capped at 25 miles per hour because we know fatalities in and outside the car drop dramatically below 25 miles an hour, just from previous historical data. But uh, the sensors don't have to work, you know, they don't have to process as much information. And when you're in a nose to tail environment, the sensors, both the LIDAR and the radar, actually have a much clearer picture of what's happening. So the sensors work better under slower conditions, the computation works better under slower conditions, and then your time to respond is also much better. 
I wonder also, I mean, one thing that struck me when you were talking about the possibility of driverless shuttles being used uh, in and around cities, the extent to which technology like that is going to reduce the number of people who are driving at all. Well, you don't even have to look that far into the future. I mean, the future is now. We know that people are delaying getting their licenses later and later, and fewer and fewer people are getting their licenses. I do think this is what the on-demand mobility companies, you know, this is actually a tremendous change that they've helped usher along is the reality that we can share vehicles and we can share transportation modalities. And so regardless of whether driverless cars are here tomorrow or in 2038 or in 2058, those trends are going to continue, particularly in the urban spaces. And you've seen those trends even just over the last few years as the idea of shared vehicles has sort of taken root? Uh, I mean, yes, I see it as a college professor. I see this directly in the number of my students who do not have driver's license. But the statistics bear this out. I mean, this this has been a trend that the transportation gurus have been following for a while. So it's pretty well established. I'm wondering about um, autonomous rail in the context, speaking of people who don't own cars. I don't own a car. Um, I do keep a license, but uh, I take the subway everywhere. But the um, city subway still, each of the subway cars in New York City still has two, has a conductor and an engineer in each one. And it sounds like this is something that that's actually, we could have all of these trains completely automated. But this seems like a kind of an issue of political economy, if nothing else, that there's powerful transit unions and uh, sort of a, a, a stasis in, in, I mean, I know you don't, you can't speak necessarily to the specifics of the New York situation, but I'm wondering how this affects public transportation too, like the, the idea of um, completely driverless trains. Well, I sure can't speak to New York situation. I was just there last week. I'm in and out of there all the time. And it how delayed, how delayed were you? <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I have to tell you, I used to be a big fan of the subway. I won't even go near it now because of all the problems. And, uh, you know, I was at a conference where one of the main speakers was delayed because the F train, you know, some crazy thing happened and he was trapped underground for a while. (laughs) So uh, it's it's a bigger issue in this nation. We're not the only nation with a highly unionized rail system. And I've worked globally in rail, and I can tell you that union problems exist everywhere. Although other countries seem to have been able to get their arms around this a bit more to understand that um, the need for autonomy, not even autonomy, just plain old automation in rail is so fundamental to safe operations, primarily because in redundant, boring situations, we know humans get easily distracted. And it is well known how many um, train and even inner city uh, drivers, both freight, passenger, will go for their cell phones uh, when they're bored in the train, which is almost all the time. And these have led to many derailments, many deaths. We have had the technology for a long time, positive train control, to stop these events from happening so that emergency brakes get thrown uh, you know, when there's closing bearing, decreasing range between two strain, two trains or maybe a train that's going to blow a signal. We know how to do it. It is simply the political will. It is, you know, the unions do have a stronghold, but it's not just the union's fault in the United States. It's also the rail companies themselves that don't want to put out the capital outlay to potentially invest the money. And so this is actually where I think as a country that we have failed from a regulation and a political standpoint, people are dying needlessly, but no one will take up this cause. And as a result of that, we are embarrassingly a third world country when it comes to rail. 
Yeah, I mean, I realize I sound like I wanted to bust up the transit union asking that question, which I absolutely don't want to do to any transit union employees listening to this podcast. Um, But it does actually raise a question that I'm sort of wondering about, which is the question of who loses in this future. You know, if we're introducing all kinds of uh, autonomous uh, vehicles on the logistical side of things in shipping, for example, um, is that a lot of people out of jobs? So this is a A very common question about as we start to introduce more automation and autonomy into the world, does this mean the end of people's jobs? The honest answer is, in some limited cases, it could spell the end of some jobs. But for every job that gets lost, there is ultimately creation of many more jobs. And we fail to realize just how the future can unfold. We can't see it, right? We don't have a crystal ball. So when the horseless carriage came around at around the turn of the century, people were just as up in arms, maybe even more so, in terms of stopping cars from taking over the horse and carriage. You know, now we we know what horses are. Horses are considered leisure items, um, you know, for people who, you know, they're not part of our transportation system at all. And so 100 years from now, we will probably look back and, you know, wonder why, our, you know, my great grandkids will be like, wow, people drive cars? That's amazing. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think it's important to, to understand where we are in history and people's resistance to change. So, you know, we will get there, but there is every time you introduce a, a new technology that people feel threatened by, you're going to see this pushback. But the flip side is to driverless cars specifically, but I could say this too about rail. When these vehicles come in, um, first of all, it's not going to be overnight. It takes time. But two really important jobs get created when these things start coming. And number one are what we call super dispatchers. Just because the cars are driverless doesn't mean they shouldn't be attended to. Somebody has to watch over not just one of them, but fleets of them. So we see a huge job growth in these super dispatch areas where you're going to have smart people who are going to have to be watching groups and groups of trains and driverless cars and figure out what to do when something goes wrong. And then when something goes wrong, the other new area that's going to grow like gangbusters, and and, uh, if you're looking for an investment opportunity, this is one you should get into, which is robot maintenance. (laughs) No one is trying to figure out who is going to fix these things. And so with all the different driverless cars and robots, home robots, and every other kind of robot that you could see in your life, we are simply unprepared to fix what is fundamentally going to be both a hardware and software challenge. To go back to the first of those two examples, it's interesting to me because when I think about, you know, the job of supervising a system, an autonomous system of transportation systems, say, you know, the luggage carts at an airport moving around, for instance, or um, rail cars in a, in a limited system, um, I think of that supervision as being something that actually computers would be especially well-suited to do, and I have a hard time imagining what the special human skill that would be brought to bear would be? Um, what is it that makes that job something that humans could do better than um, an algorithm, watching algorithm, so to speak? Right. Well, so what computers do really well are routine, repeatable computations. 
when something goes wrong, that's when computers do their worst, right? And this is actually what even dispatchers do today. And presumably, you could even say this extends to air traffic controllers. When everything is working fine, air traffic controllers, you know, their workload is significantly less, and they themselves will tell you they're on a bit of autopilot. But that's not what they're there for. They're there for when weather fronts move in and everything doesn't go right and computers can't sort everything out. And this is what we call knowledge-based reasoning. Humans are at their best when they're allowed to think out of the box and to try to come up with solutions in new circumstances that may be slightly different from the last time a thunderstorm came in. And so we really need people to help solve problems. And I can guarantee you when driverless cars hit the roads in mass, and then there's the over-the-air software update that causes problems like Elon Musk does, you know, once a quarter, uh, and then things just don't work the right way, then I have to, it, in my mind, I even wonder, what's that call center going to look like <laughs> uh, in India when all of Silicon Valley comes to a grinding halt because the over-the-air update, something went wrong, and, you know, now we've got to try to fix it on the fly. Uh, this is sort of related. I, I'm interested in why you think we're going to look at probably automated cargo plane flights, but not automated commercial passenger flights. Oh, heck no. No, because you always have drunk passengers, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you wherever you have groups of people, you need the James T. Kirk to manage those people. So you've got to have somebody in charge. And, you know, whether it's the captain as we know it today, or maybe it's the Uber super stewardess or flight attendant of the future, you know, who's both the captain and, you know, she's a trained uh, U.S. Air Marshal uh, Mm -hmm. and also can get you your drinks. You know, I mean, there have been many, many possible job you know, function allocations that have talked about when we go to the future, but it's pretty universal that people need people when you think your life is on the line. There's actually a a name to that. It's called shared fate. Most people would not fly in a passenger drone aircraft because they want somebody in the front who shares their own fate. Mm. I do think, though, that if push came to shove, and that's those are large groups of people, um, particularly, you know, if you'll own a Tesla, most people who own a Tesla would also be willing to get into their passenger drone and trust that it would take them from point A to point B. And I do believe in this, this Jetson's future that it's possible. And then the consequence to for something going wrong is just maybe one or two people's loss of life. And so I think that we would be willing to, it's called risk homeostasis. We'd be willing to adjust our risk in those circumstances, but putting 500 people on a plane and then allowing the computer with no human on board. Um, that's what's happening now, by the way. I mean, planes fly themselves right. most of the time when you're on the plane. So you're comfortable with that now, but what makes you okay with that is the fact that somebody's up there to save your life. <laughs> and talking to you through the intercom, telling you that the turbulence isn't that bad or whatever. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so when you, you, know, you mentioned a few minutes ago... Um, your your grandchildren and great grandchildren, um, and you just mentioned now the the Jetsons future. Um, so I take it that you do think at some point some version of this vision of the future is going to become a reality that we'll be moving around in pods that don't look much like cars that are entirely driverless and allow us all that extra time for leisure time, and that our planes will be flown by um, by purely by algorithm um, and that kind of thing. When 
when do you think that will be, if not by 2038? How long do you think it'll come to pa- it'll take to come to pass? Well, you know, if I think about when are we going to have Blade Runner? You know, the opening scenes of Blade Runner are the ones that I'm always going to in my head. We're living in when Blade Runner now, don't that? you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, not in my lifetime, uh, but not 500 years either. You know, I think that, you know, one w- within 100 years, we'll be a lot closer to these free-form types of technologies where, you know, you can think about having the, literally the car drives up to your house and then it unfolds its wings and then does a vertical takeoff and takes you wherever you want to go. So, you know, that's definitely achievable. You know, I put that in the 50-year-out time frame, uh, again, knowing that there's actually no technical problem that has to be solved. It's socio-technical. I have a very dumb question. Um, I was just out in Los Angeles, and the traffic was horrible. So my question is, is traffic going to get better by 2038 in L.A. or anywhere? Well, that's a great question because I think that's also a big misnomer of driverless cars. Look, if we all had our driverless cars, what we would do is have our driverless cars take us to work, drop us off, and then go drive around in circles until we were ready to come back, until it was ready to come back and get us. And then the problem we would create would be so much worse, right? So I can see a real dystopian future where we think all these cool technologies are going to amazingly improve our life. And then what we do is we create a monster kind of behind the scenes. So, um, you know, that's on one extreme. I do think that, uh, for example, these traffic jam pilots, if we could get those moving, you would be amazed at how much better traffic would flow. I would guess, given some of the simulations that we've done over the years, that if traffic jam pilots became standard on all cars, just that act alone would keep traffic congestion from getting as bad as it is right now. So you would see a dramatic improvement just with that one thing alone, right? So I think we need to be careful when we start to roll out these technologies that we think through all the ramifications. And so, yes, if I had a car that could drop me off anywhere and, and you know, urban planners want to say, oh, great, then we'll free up all kinds of parking, well, does that mean my car has to go all the way home and sit in a garage? <laughs> right? right. I mean, so how good is that? Now I've doubled, you know, my carbon footprint for my commute to work. So, again, you know, one thing never solves everything. So we've talked a, a bunch about driverless cars, but I know that you have a lot to say about drones. And I wondered maybe if we could shift for at least a few minutes to talk about that part of the future and what the major challenges you see there Drones are almost all regulatory issues. By regulatory, I mean both just the permission to fly, but it's also a much more detailed problem in that we need to think of a brand new air traffic control system. And the one, the air traffic control system that we have now is seriously broken. It's seriously behind. Uh, we have not been able to do a massive technology upgrade for many, many, many years, and these are due to regu- uh, union issues. So knowing that we have a massive current air traffic control problem in just terms of upgrading it, I fail to see as somebody who works in the field on a day-to-day basis how we're going to be able to layer in an entirely new air traffic control system that works at low altitude to keep drones from hitting them each other and also hitting passenger aircraft, for example. 
And so we know how to do it, and we know the te- we have all the technologies we need. There's no new technology that has to be developed, but it's incredibly complex. And how to get a low-altitude air traffic control system that's mostly automated, because to do this, it would, we wouldn't have enough humans to be able to direct these things. And, and it's not like you're calling a pilot on the plane and telling them what to do, right? So the, both the level of automation has to jump up significantly, but also how then that would integrate with manned air travel is obviously a huge threat to safety. And so NASA is working on it. The FAA, you know, they are working on it, but the progress they're making is, you know, along the lines of the Mesozoic era, you know, uh, it's really slow. And one of the reasons it's really slow is that it's really expensive. What you have to do to build these things and test them and go through certification processes you know, and will China and maybe the UAE, for example, get ahead of us? They will probably get ahead of us, and they already are in some cases in terms of demonstrations. But, you know, we have a very, very safe air traffic control system for a reason in this country. And so to get to those same levels of safety with drones is just going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. And again, companies, investors want the thing. They want the flying car. When they find out that the flying car has to come with a couple of billion dollars of at least initial layout with air traffic control development, they start to lose, you know, their fortitude over over that investment. Is this something that we're going to see development in uh, then mostly by sort of big and established companies? This is not exactly a thing that a, a small disruptor can come come in and yank the rug out for, under from someone. If you go back 10 years and you look at all the companies that were exploding on the scene for small drones um, 10 years ago, most of them have gone out of business today. The reality mm. is everyone had this overly positive outlook on the small drone boom market and you know, they really should have come and talked to me first so I could explain to them the pain and anguish of the FAA and uh, to help, you know, calibrate them for, look, these are good ideas, but if you ignore the regulatory infrastructure, this is not something that you can just buy lobbyists for. The FAA is a very strong regulatory agency and it has the political will of the people because it's also very safe. I mean, it, this is, seems like the one reason I ask is this seems like the kind of thing Amazon in particular would love to get its to hands around. I can assure you that they're they're trying and they're working with the FAA. <laughs> and I can almost bet you Jeff Bezos has like, you know, hit his hand up against his head going, oh, my God, these guys are driving me crazy. <laughs> because everyone who works in the drone industry um, has tried to beat their head against the wall after talking with the FAA. Um, But you can like it or lump it, right? It's the system that you work in. Jeff Bezos and the other drone companies have made a lot of progress in terms of getting small drone certification, which has been great. And so that has opened up new avenues. But just because you've been successful at opening up new, very niche markets does not mean that you are going to get the FAA to just willy-nilly open up the national airspace. And I can promise you that if a... Boeing 767 was taken down by an Amazon Prime Air drone uh, delivering a, you know, $40 package. 
it would put oh my God, an can, end. Can you imagine being like the prime member who ordered that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Your diapers. I mean, yeah, right, exactly. That thought experiment doesn't go too far for you to realize, yeah, there's a lot on the line there. And so the FAA is going to want to make sure, rightly so, that all the right checks and balances are in place to at least make sure that we've thought about that ahead. Not not that you can prevent all accidents, but certainly in that case, you know, we know what it takes to prevent at least obvious accidents. So is it likely that, you know, in 2038, I will be getting my $40 prime packages delivered to me by a small drone? I think that it's possible that depending on certain niche markets that you live in, um, that generally have good weather and not, I have to tell you, in New York, there are some amazing aerodynamic wind tunnels that get set up <laughs> by the buildings. And I personally would love to just fly a bunch of drones around New York just to see where they'd end up <laughs> uh, because there's no way that you could control them. And that's actually one of the other problems. You know, with small mass aircraft, they are incredibly susceptible to wind. And I don't care how good your controllers are. Um, you know, especially on a 20-minute battery life, you just can't power overpower forces of nature. So, you know, I, I know Jeff Bezos loves drones, and I love drones too, but neither one of us can get rid of physics. We like to go back and think about the prediction and um, talk about it on, along three sort of axes, um, being how credible it is, how likely it is, and how terrifying we find it, um, the, 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 the anxiety index, basically. So, uh, Missy, if you don't mind participating and rating the own likelihood and credibility <laughs> of, your, um, of your prediction, but I'm going to, David, how credible did you find this prediction? Uh, you know, depressingly credible. Or I guess I would say it's, that's the, <laughs> the likelihood question. Uh, credible, completely credible. I mean, I think um, generally we, you know, across our culture, we overstate how radical um, new technology, how radically, how, how radical the changes that new technologies will bring um, really are and really underrate all of the obstacles to full implementation and adaptation. And I think, you know, I'm not sure that I'm all the way where Missy is about um how long this will take, but I think it's completely credible to think that there are a lot of things to worry about that, like, you know, the Ubers and the Teslas of the world have not really worried all that much about, at least in public. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what, Missy, what I liked so much about this prediction is how is how uh, how much it acknowledged that the sort of question of the technology and the question of the sociocultural uh, environment in which it's being released are are not really separable issues that this is, you know, in a vacuum technology might work, but of course none of it is in a vacuum. And so to me, the credibility of this was like based, I found it extremely credible because I recognized, you know, having been writing about this for however long that the systems in which the tech is embedded are always going to have as much of a say over the adoption and development of the tech as, you know, the sort of the technology is itself. So I found this extremely credible. Um, this is always a hard category, Missy, but you are free to rate the credibility of your own <laughs> prediction here. Uh, oh, well, you know, I mean, uh, I've spent my life's work doing this, so, you know. <laughs> it I, better I, be. I, you stand behind I, it. You stand behind yeah, it. I do. <laughs> I hate to be, you know, I, I have to call myself the Debbie Downer, um, you know, because people want to ha be optimistic. And I also don't want to destroy people's dreams. 
But it's also my job to make sure that people are considering to destroy all people's sides. dreams. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like some CEOs, in fact, pay you to destroy their dreams, which is a pretty good, pretty good line good, of work good. to be in. <laughs> well, you know, um, and the stakeholder, the shareholders, you know, I mean, that's yeah. what they're paying their CEOs to know what the realities are. Okay, let's talk likelihood. David, how likely do you think this scenario is? Well, um, you know, I see when I, I obviously I'm no expert, uh, not any kind of expert like Missy is, but when I look and see at least some pilot programs already um, around the U.S. and around the world, I I imagine that twenty in 20 years we'll at least have um, some parts of the country, some parts of the world where driverless cars have um, taken deeper root than um, than I think she's describing. So I would say while I find um, a close to driverless individual car future plausible, I think it's likelier that um, depending on where you are, depending on your um, on your community, that there you may be living in a world where you have a driverless car take you to work and idle for three hours and then take you home. <laughs> um, I, I found it extremely likely, um, and I'm trying to, to separate out how much of it is my own personal enjoyment on throwing cold water on particular techno-optimists <laughs> and how much of it is. I mean, I think that the the to me, one of the questions is about where the capital is going to be over the next 20 years. And so the idea of this being used in particular around difficult logistics problems uh, or even easy logistics problems that could be made cheaper, like planes, like trains. Um, it seems, I agree with Missy, that it seems a lot more likely that we're going to see autonomy across those categories than in uh, the sort of individual personal driverless car, where it seems, you know, there is no Jeff Bezos with his with an enormous company really trying to make this work because he knows how much more it will help him corner his particular markets. Although I guess you could look at a company, I mean, Missy may have thoughts about this too, but you could look at a company like Uber and see that their main path to the valuation that they've been yeah. saddled with this through the elimination of human drivers. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about this, Missy, if you think that Uber is screwed because it's not actually going to get autonomous, personal autonomous driving in time. Well, I mean, so I think that's where I don't totally agree with that. I mean, I think that in 2038, you could see limited markets of Ubers and Lyfts, driverless Ubers and Lyfts, traveling very well-censored, um, well-marked, well-established driverless tracks. So this goes into the slow-speed shuttles that I'm talking about. Yeah. So I I definitely believe, and even some maybe even some high-speed lanes um, back and forth to an airport, for example. So there will be some controlled environments where these you will find these cars. So I don't think Uber and the world are, you know, the rest of the on-demand mobility will not be there, but they will be in limited markets. And so, you know, my, my the clarification is in 2038, what I'm saying you will not have is the ability to go anywhere at any time and in, in, under any conditions. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, having just been driving through the LAX departures, you know, lines, that it was probably actually a more terrifying and anxiety-inducing driving experience than being on the 405. So I might rather not have autonomous cars at LAX. Um, speaking of anxiety, let's talk about how terrified we are by this prediction, David. Well, I would say, you know, mostly not terrified. It's like if things are going to be more like they are now, that's not too scary. On the other hand, there is so much, um, investment psychological and, and economic in these technologies that if they don't really bear fruit, um, you know, it could get dispiriting, could get, you know, lead to some techno despair. Um, I guess that's where I'd 
guess that the anxiety part comes from. But, you know, altogether not that scary. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's not scary in the same way that predictions of like an omni, you know, advertising surveillance state future are. But it is, there is something sort of... um, there's something weirdly terrifying about a, a, a future where stuff hasn't changed as dramatically as it's changed in the last 20 years that, you know, we're like, it's in some ways I feel a little bit hooked on huge dramatic technological swings. Maybe we'll get them in other areas that aren't, you know, sort of drones and autonomous cars. Um, but that's that's more sort of an existential ennui than an existential yeah. terror. Uh, Missy, how terrified are you of your own prediction? You know, I'm not terrified. I know where to invest my money and where not to invest my money. You're feeling very secure about your prediction. I feel very like. secure. I feel like my job is very secure. Uh, certainly, I could tell you, a woman in tech, you know, they just announced today that they're going to start putting women on boards in California. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I'm in a good place right now. So um, It sounds like yeah. the bet to make is to uh, become a roboticist in the next Yeah, years. no, I would actually tell you that um, getting into the tech world is certainly Certainly, as an educator, of course, I'm going to say that. But you know, the the sky is looking, you know, very rosy uh, from my perspective. And I do think it's important, you know, what if you're terrified by something, it means that you don't know enough about it. So I would actually put this back on your audience and say, you know, don't be terrified. You know, learn more about what it is that you're that you're hearing about, and then. You know, education is the key. But of course, I'm going to say that. I don't know. I just finished a book about climate change, which I now now feel like an expert about. And it's fucking terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that expertise is always a solution to terror, but maybe in a lot of cases it is. Well, but then you know what to do to maybe, you know, help address it. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Thank you so much for appearing, Missy. You're welcome. I hope this was helpful. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Missy Cummings for sharing her vision of 2038 with us. To stay on top of our present timeline and rapidly changing culture, business, media, and politics, please visit the new Intelligencer at nymag.com slash Intelligencer. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. in association with New York Magazine. Our editor is David Haskell, and our editor-in-chief is Adam Moss. I'm Max Reed. That's David Wallace-Wells. Thanks for listening.